Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. This episode isn't going to be an easy one to listen to. There are no segments. You've probably never heard of our guest. I wouldn't call it uplifting. Even the music is different. But it is, I hope, one of the most impactful shows we've made this season. December 14th marks the fifth anniversary of the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, which left 26 people, 20 students, and six educators dead. Today we're going to hear from Mark Barden, the father of one of those students killed, five-year-old Daniel. Mark is a co-founder of Sandy Hook Promise, a gun violence prevention advocacy group made up largely of the parents of Sandy Hook victims. That's one of the most effective and active organizations you won't hear much policy talk either. I want to keep our focus squarely on the story of Mark and on the story of Daniel, because so often these stories, these small moments, a strand of hair caught in a bike helmet disappear forever. But as Mark says, if only we could feel his pain, perhaps we would be motivated to make the changes necessary to prevent further massacres. And there have been many. I wanted to let Mark speak, to bring Daniel back for at least a little while. Stay with us. This is the Fatherly Podcast. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy yourself. Before we get started with the interview, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Home by Verizon, TLC, and ADT. Now to Mark. My name is Mark Barden. Um, I'm a professional musician. My wife, Jackie, is a professional educator. Uh, she was born and raised in the Bronx, New York. I'm born and raised in Yonkers, New York. And uh, we moved to Newtown um, in 2007 uh, to afford a better life and a, and a decent education for our three children. As a professional musician and a, and a school teacher, you know, we were, we were just making ends meet, living in Newtown, raising our three beautiful children. And... Um, it, what it afforded us was the opportunity to be with our kids uh, all the time. We, we we were able to just get by without having to put the kids in daycare. So I was home with them during the day. Uh, we would all meet up for dinner, and then oftentimes I would go out and work at night. And it was working really, really nicely for us. Uh, Daniel was our youngest, so I was home with him uh, most recently. James and Natalie started going to school um, before Daniel was in preschool, you know, he and I would spend all day together, you know, and physically it was challenging because I'd get home from gigs at three or four in the morning from, you know, I'd finish a gig uh, on 52nd Street at one o'clock in the morning and then have to break down all my gear and then drive all the way back up here. The biggest indulgence I would occasionally allow myself was stop for uh, two slices of pizza at 59th Street on my home. And then the, the car bomb would hit me somewhere around 684, and I would sometimes have to pull over and sleep for 15 minutes. All of that changed uh, uh, on the morning of December 14th, 2012. In those days, James was in uh, Newtown Middle School, and Natalie was at uh, Reed Intermediate School, and then Daniel was in the first grade, had just started first grade that fall um, at Newtown, at the at Sandy Hook Elementary School. But on that morning, it was a Friday morning, uh, December 14th, it was Christmas season, 
And the first time ever that as I was walking James to the bus, we had just gone out the door of the house and I hear little footsteps behind us. It was Daniel. He's running up behind me in his pajamas and he put flip-flops on his little feet. And I said, dude, what are you doing up? It's, you know, it's still dark. And he said, I want to walk, walk, uh, I want to walk with you guys to the bus so I can hug James and kiss him and tell him I love him. So we walked James to the bus and he, 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 he festooned him with affection and love. And we walked back to the house and he said, you know, it's still dark. It's way early. You want to go back to sleep? You have time. You can go back to bed for a while. He said, no, daddy, this gives us more time for cuddling. So we got on the couch and we were wrestling and cuddling. We had turned on the Christmas tree lights that we had gotten the week before. And he says, Daddy, look at how beautiful the sunrise is this morning. You can see the re reflection of our Christmas tree lights in the window with that beautiful sunrise behind it. And I thought to myself, you know what? What seven-year-old kid thinks like that? I said, you know what? You're right. And I went and got the camera. And so I, ha I have this picture now of that morning, that beautiful sunrise. It was peach colored, orange and pink. And with a little reflection, as Daniel had noticed of our Christmas tree lights, I will spend every minute of my life wishing I had taken a picture of Daniel, but I didn't. Two days ago, I was sweeping the kitchen floor and I was sweeping up this little broken piece of spaghetti. And I said to my wife, Jackie, this is from that fucking thing that James was trying to demonstrate that if you break a piece of pasta, it never breaks in two pieces. There was little shards of pasta all over the floor that I thought I'd picked up and I thought I'd picked up and I thought I'd picked up and I kept finding one more and I kept finding one more. And so the other day I said to Jackie, I said, I think I finally have extracted the last piece of this. You want to know what's fucked up in my head? This stupid little broken piece of pasta. God forbid anything were to ever take James away from us, that this thing would take on a whole new meaning. And it would be this precious thing that I would probably store away and save forever. Back to the morning. And so we get back to the house, and uh, it's just the two of us now. And out of the middle of nowhere, he asked me to show him something on the piano. And so this morning, December 14, 2012, it became very important to him for me to show him how to play something on the piano. So we sat down at the piano, and he wanted to make sure he was sitting properly, his posture was correct, and he was holding his little hands the right way. And so I just showed him the the uh, the the chorus of Jingle Bells, which he was able to play beautifully. And I thought, wow. He did a beautiful job with it, and then it was time to walk to the bus. I had played a corporate Christmas party the night before, and I was exhausted. So I asked if we could replace our usual running game of racing and tag up to the bus uh, with just holding hands, which, which we did. And so I kissed him and hugged him and told him I loved him and I, and I put him on the school bus. I started getting texts and phone calls about a lockdown in the district. I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. It was probably just a drill or, or a, some, some precaution, everything. Until my neighbor, Frank, said, hey, what's going on at the school? I heard there was a report of a shooting. I'm like, oh, crap. So I fly down to the school. There's a firehouse out on the corner, and it's a little wooded lane down to this rural setting that I had been to dozens of times because all three kids had gone through Sandy Hook Elementary and has a 
stay at home dad, I was, I was in there frequently as a volunteer or a reader or whatever it was. I arrived on this chaotic scene, like nothing I've ever seen before with more emergency vehicles and personnel in one place than I've ever seen in my life. I don't know if it, if it was the it was a bit of information that was informing me, or it was my own assumption that maybe this was some kind of a domestic dispute, like a disgruntled spouse had gone into the school with uh, you know an issue with somebody. They're starting to dismiss kids out of the school. Very little information. I have family and friends who are texting me and and calling me like, "What's going on?" Like, I don't know yet. I haven't found Daniel yet, but I'll let you know. And then. Um, you know, so they're 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 collecting kids and the, they had moved the equipment out of the garage of the firehouse and they're assembling the kids there and they're holding up signs by grade and I'm looking at grade one and I'm not seeing Daniel. I'm looking around and going back outside and back inside and asking questions and at at some point um, they said if you know if you're if if your family if you haven't been reunited with your family member we're asking you know family only to to join us in this room. At that point, my friend and neighbor, Melissa Malin, was there to collect her son, Kyle, who was Daniel's best friend at the time. And uh, she, she had collected Kyle and she knew that I had not found Daniel yet. So she stayed with me. And I think at that point, maybe we had thought that perhaps the principal had been shot. And I remember gearing myself up to have this conversation with this sensitive compassionate little boy. Like, how am I going to explain this to him? This is going to be rough. So I was trying to get that conversation ready in my head. Uh, and then that's when they, they, they made the announcement that uh, a gunman had shot his way into the San Diego Elementary School and, and shot and killed six educators and 21st grade children. And that's when we knew that our little Daniel was was one of the 20 children who would have been shot to death. And I know for the rest of the world, this is almost five years ago, but for me and my family, I will just never I will never get used to um, to coming to terms with the fact that my little buddy is gone and that he's gone forever and that he died such a horrible, frightening, violent death and that it was somebody else's choice. So like if this were a freak accident, you could throw your hands in the air and say, well, I did exactly what I'm supposed to do as a parent. I put my children on the bus and sent them off to the safest place in the world, right? So in that aspect, there's, I mean, it's completely out of my control. But then the back end of that is, is the other side of that is because of the way this happened, it was preventable. And because it's preventable, then there can be something, there's something that can be done. And in the early days, I mean, oh my God, in the early days, uh, oh my God, I can remember my, my wife and I literally just collapsing on the floor in a heap, crying and sobbing, and both of us exclaiming that we want to be de- dead. We just wanted to die. Uh, and James and Natalie coming from somewhere in the house and just 
laying on the floor and wrapping their arms around us in this reverse comforting mechanism scene. And, you know, quickly realizing like, oh my God, we can't do this. We, you, we just don't have the luxury of checking out mm-hmm. at any level. I'm still kind of in this limbo of, my God, did this really happen? Please tell me that Daniel is still down in his room down the hall. You know, and I have to reacquaint myself with this horrible reality still. Um, so I don't know if there was any clear demarcation that says, okay, I've accepted that this has happened and now I'm mission oriented and on my way. Not really, not at all, actually. It took this greatest tragedy for us to finally wake up and say, we have to do something about this. And to learn, we knew, but to actually really think about and consider that this is happening every day. Across the cities in our country, this is happening every day. And it people don't, it's not noticed, it's ignored. People don't take, you know, Kids are dying in the streets of Chicago and New York and Los Angeles and Houston and Atlanta and Detroit and all across this country to gun violence and to gun-related tragedies and to violence in general every day. And it's nobody, nobody's, nobody cares. Nobody makes any noise about it. There's like a deep Steely Dan cut um, that Daniel loved that I can't listen to. Turn that heartbeat over again. And there was a couple of Alison Krauss tunes that he really loved. Um, and we actually played one at his funeral. Some of that stuff, like, um, I find it hard to listen to. My wife and I kind of have a bit of a divide on that where, well, in the immediate, she wanted to move. She wanted to just extract herself from everything that was painful around her, which just isn't possible. You know, we'd go on vacations and try to, you know, it's with you all the time. Yeah, everywhere you go. inside. It's there, right? And you can't physically take yourself out of that. However, there is a normal, natural human tendency to do that, to change your setting and your environment, and maybe it'll help. Uh, so she invited the kids, would you like to move? And they're like, why would we want to move? All of our friends, everything that we're connected to is here. So that was off the table. So we changed the house around and she emptied all the drawers out, you know, in his room, changed his room around. And I would torture myself. I have this masochistic need to feel the pain. Like I want the pain. I don't want to be better. I don't want to be okay. I want, I want the pain. I want to suffer. And so I do, I torture myself, you know, and I would go into his room because before he could dress himself, I was in there with him every morning, helping him get dressed and then helping him dress himself. And, and I'd open it and I'd hear the same sound the old wooden dresser would make. And I'd hold his clothes in my hand and sit on his bed and cry and cry and smell them and just torture myself. And so Jackie stopped that all. And she took all the clothes out, had her sisters actually pack up the clothes and put them in boxes. So that's gone. Um, but I had a little seat mounted on the back of my bicycle that I would ride him around on before he learned to ride his own two-wheeler. And we had this ridiculous old bright yellow football helmet that he would wear. And so that has his beautiful little strawberry blonde hairs in it that I still go to the garage and I look at his little hairs. And it's this tangible, I mean, I'm thinking his little living DNA is in those hairs. That's something tangible. I mean, I know it sounds just desperate, right? 
I went up to, with our state trooper up to the medical examiner to get more detailed information. You know, because here's this kid that I spent all day with, every day. I was so intimately connected with every every part of him. And there was this piece of his life that I didn't know anything about. And arguably more, maybe the most significant part of his life. Um, and so there's more detail in that that, I, that the state trooper advised me against, but I think I'm going to continue that journey and, and, and go for the rest of it. But um, that's something I'll have to do on my own. Part of it is that is that need to know um, just for that simple reason. And then the other part of it is absolutely to intensify the pain. Absolutely. And it's hard to explain that to people. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors for this episode, Hum by Verizon, TLC, and ADT. A note about the music. Mark Barden is a professional musician. This is a song he wrote shortly after Daniel's death for the documentary Newtown. It's called 4DGB. This show was produced by Dan DeZula. Special thanks to Kelly Kramer, Andrew Berman, Ben Marks, and of course, Mark Barden.